I'd like to acknowledge the true locals, the First Nations people who have been custodians of land, waters and culture for tens of thousands of years. We pay respects to First Nation elders, past, present and emerging. We recognise that Indigenous peoples are on the forefront of a climate crisis and must play a critical role in shaping climate solutions. This podcast was recorded in Nam, the traditional lands of the Kulin Nation, where sovereignty was never ceded. We're super excited to be sitting here today with Paul Geeson, who is uh, the Wave Swell Energy Chief Executive Officer. <laughs> um, for anyone who doesn't know, Wave Swell is a world leading technology that converts the energy in waves to clean zero emissions electricity. Paul has more than 25 years of executive leadership experience in the communications, technology and energy sectors in Australia and in the USA. Throughout his career, Paul has successfully developed and commercialised technologies and products in these sectors. As a director of a director and CEO of Waveswell Energies, Paul's responsibilities include defining and executing the company's strategy. Welcome to our Climate Convos podcast, Paul. Thank you, Belinda. I'm very pleased to be here. Great. We always start these off, um, these podcasts off with a question about the last time that you went into the ocean. So it could be swimming, surfing, whatever, and just a memorable, memorable experience from that. Well, you, you'll be pleased to know that the last time I was in the ocean was actually uh, on a small zodiac riding out to our unit on King Island, just off uh, off Grassy, off Sandblow Beach in Grassy. So that that was about two weeks ago, Belinda, and uh, I can assure you that the oceans of Bass Strait um, provided for lots of interest that day, and uh, it's always interesting managing to get from the zodiac onto the unit. Um, the swells, I recall, were reasonable. Uh, and of course, where there are reasonable swells, we're generating electricity. So it was a amazing. memorable experience. Yeah, oh, sounds amazing. Um, and of course, your project's just so exciting. It's a world first, and you've successfully completed the project that you just mentioned, um, Wave Energy Project on King Island. Can you run us through the basics of technology and how you're capturing wave energy. Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, so, so really the fundamental um, premise of our technology is oscillating water column technology. Uh, and really for us what that means is uh, creating blowholes, if you like, or an artificial blowhole. Our artificial blowhole is constructed with concrete and with steel. Uh, it sits on the seabed in the location that it is currently in. It's not to say that into the future they won't be floating units, but this particular demonstration and pilot unit sits on the seabed. Um, it weighs roughly 1,200 tonnes. So it's a very yeah. significant piece of infrastructure and certainly we can talk more about what that looks like in the ocean. Uh, but essentially the, the nature of the blowhole is that um, we rely on wave energy, swell and waves coming into our unit, an enormous chamber, uh, a concrete-based chamber. Uh, and as that, uh, as waves and swell come into the chamber, it rises in the chamber and disperses air. And the dispersion of air is very important for us in terms of the way we generate our electricity. So as a wave enters the chamber, rises in the chamber and it's dispersing air, we allow the air to leave the chamber through some very carefully designed vents. Um, so the air is taken out of the chamber, 
Then as, as the air has left the chamber, those vents seal and the only way for the air to come back in as the wave recedes is through our turbine. So it's very important to understand with our technology that it is an air-driven turbine. The, the wave itself, the water, the swell, does not come into contact with our turbine. It's actually the force of air as the wave recedes out of the, the blowhole structure we spin the turbine that creates electricity that electricity is then put through some processes on the unit um, it's converted on the unit so that it's suitable for export back into the grid on King Island and our unit sitting roughly 60 to 70 meters from the beach the coastline um, where we come back onto land and there's an undersea cable that is buried effectively from the unit that then joins up with and connects to the grid on King Island and that electricity is exported. Um, a couple of, one very important feature of our technology to, to ensure that it's understood is it, it's, there's an uh, elegant simplicity about our technology in that we only have four moving parts on our unit, which is very important uh, in terms of both the reliability of the unit, but also the effect on the environment that we have. And so our four moving parts are essentially the turbine that spins, and that actually is the spinning of a copper rod that creates the, and generates the electricity. Mm -hmm. We have a shut-off door in the, the unit, which is in, essential to controlling pressure within the unit. As the seas get really big, uh, we don't want our turbine spinning out of control, so that gives us a mechanism to control the, the pressure in the chamber. We have some pressure release valves um, that also assist in, in that sense. Uh, and essentially that along with the, uh, the vents which do open and close, rubber vents that, that essentially allow the air out of the, the unit, um, that's the extent of the moving parts on, on the unit and importantly all of those moving parts actually do, do not sit in or under the water, they are all uh, in the unit away from exposure to, to ocean conditions which is very important in terms of reliability and availability of the unit. Yeah, less points of failure too, I guess. Less um, points of failure, absolutely right. And uh, that's been really important for us because when you're in the business of generating electricity, you want to be available as often as possible, particularly when the waves are, are rolling in and there's electricity to be, to be made. And we're, we're very confident and unlike many other ocean-based technologies that do sit in or under the water, um, we have the benefit of our um, moving parts not being in the water, which means that they're much more easily accessed at much lower cost. So uh, if something did go wrong, you can easily get there to correct. fix them. Correct. Look, it's not to say that, of course, there are times when um, the ocean uh, in that area can be, can be very um, volatile, and so we need to exercise caution and we take uh, safety is incredibly important for our yeah. our people that, that uh, jump on the unit, but, but invariably, yes, we, we've been able to get to the unit um, without, without a great deal of concern. As I say, it is, it's near shore, effectively, um, and you know, hopefully the, the times where we do need to get onto the unit are obviously kept to an absolute minimum, um, and we're able to do most things remotely, and we have a lot of autonomous functionality as well, which, again, is very important to ensuring that we don't need to attend to the unit, and the benefit in that, of course, is that um, you know we're able to operate on a, a more constant basis, uh, and we're able to keep the costs of operating as as low as possible.
amazing. I've been to King Island. Love, love it. Um, and I noticed grassy's not on the most exposed side of the island for waves. So is that... I don't know. I've got a million questions running through my head. Oh, no, no, that's <laughs> like, a really... Why choose a bay that is more protected versus having it on the open side over, you know, where the swells are pounding 24-7? Do you not need massive waves to make this work? That, that, that is... That is uh, I'm just really delighted with that observation, Belinda. Look, for, for us, because this unit was unashamedly a demonstration and pilot unit, we were very conscious of not wanting to, for a first of its kind, to put it in a location where there may have been risks outside of our control that were going to be very difficult to manage. Very, very significant seas essentially could have been one of those risks. Right. So it was important to us that we found a location where we got a very good variety of wave types. And certainly the location which is just off Sandblow Beach, um, off Grassy, has presented us with waves ranging from roughly half a metre to you know, over two metres, not Which that is often. kind of significant. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a significant, significant. wave and, and ab absolutely. So the important thing as we were proving the technology was th the principle of how much energy can we convert from a wave that comes into the unit to exportable electricity. And we wanted to prove that our technology could, could convert the same amount of energy, if you like, as a percentage of what comes into the unit, whether or not it was in a small wave or in a large wave. And that's, that's where the results of our pilot have been so exciting in that we've been able to generate roughly, well, let me say, we've been able to convert nearly 50% of the energy in the waves that have been coming into the unit into exportable electricity. And we've been able to do that in small waves and we've been able to do that in big waves. So that was incredibly important for us. Units into the future, Belinda, will absolutely be placed in more robust wave climates. So the bigger um, the wave, the more energy that you can harness. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So the, the, the more energy there is in the wave um, and the more consistent the, the wave type is, yes, the more electricity we're able to produce. Um, that is absolutely the case. However, the conversion efficiency from a wave which as I say, we were quite excited about, is we, we extract a similar percentage of energy from small waves and big waves. So that's very encouraging as you think into the future for the unit where there will be possibilities for the unit to operate quite commercially and quite successfully in, in smaller wave um, climates. But that's ahead of us um, yep. because it's, it's very important that the, the next round of units that are deployed are in quite commercial wave climates, if I could call it that, where the, the oceans are more robust, they're more consistent, uh, because clearly then you produce a higher volume of electricity to export. Yeah, and the wave doesn't need to be broken when it hits the structure? No, look, it's, it's this swell. is a, it's, it's we call wave swell. Uh, in some respects, we prefer swells to, to waves in the traditional way we would think about it, because you'll appreciate the oscillating nature of the wave in the column is the most important feature for us. So when a wave breaks, that is effectively energy dissipating from the wave. So in actual fact, the, the, the more dense energy will be in the swell. So we're really looking for that ideal location where our unit receives the swell into the, into the chamber. Yeah. Wow, it could be a whole different way that we start looking at swell forecasts. Yeah. And be like, more energy for the grid. Yeah, I've, I've never been so interested in swell forecasts. I bet. And so um, you briefly mentioned earlier, but what does the actual structure look like? Like, what can we physically see? 
Yeah, look, look. there's obviously opportunities to have a look at the structure um, online on our, our website or elsewhere. The, the structure is a, it's, it's a significant piece of infrastructure. Roughly, um, the unit sits in about um, 6 to 10 metres of water, again, depending on tidal um, activity. So a, a quite a, an amount of the unit is actually submerged because, as I've said, it's sitting on the seabed yeah. in that depth of water. But essentially, the unit is uh, roughly um, 15 metres tall, it's, it's 20 metres uh, deep, if you like, and the, the oscillating water column itself is seven metres wide. We've got two pontoons on either side of the, um, the, the, the uh, if you like, the chamber entrance. So it is a substantial um, infrastructure. Sitting out of the water, if you do the math on that, it's sort of roughly seven to eight metres above the water, as, as well as that, obviously, the, um, the part of the unit that's submerged. It's primarily concrete. Uh, we have tried to make that concrete look um, attractive. Uh, we have a couple of steel pontoons on either side, which typically in, in are very close to being submerged, so it's not as visible. Um, but, but look, the units are significant pieces of infrastructure. Um, we are very focused on and very conscious that uh, into the future, we need to work on the way these units look. I love it. I look at it and I see, it, yes, it's a piece of industrialised looking infrastructure, but I've had been fascinated with industrialised infrastructure since I was a kid. I love looking at things and wondering how it all worked. Uh, but, you know, look, there, there are people who, who tell us that they are um, not put off, at, put off at all by the look of the unit. There are other people who will look at it and think, oh my goodness. Um, and so we, we're very conscious of that and we have a responsibility to ensure that as we continue to develop the units, um, we are looking at the implications in terms of size, we are looking at the implications in terms of the components that go into the building of the units, um, and we're very conscious of wanting to ensure that we don't offend people's enjoyment of being on the beach, um, surfing, or, or being you know, close and proximate to the units. Uh, so that's something we've got to continue to work on and it's a key focus of our ongoing research and development. Mm -hmm. And I guess regardless of how they look, even if it is industrial, it's still nicer than a whopping big coal mine or power plant or massive oil and gas rig sitting out there. So. Yeah, oh, look, you're absolutely right, Belinda. And I think um, we also think about that in the context of some of the offshore platforms now as well, the wind. Uh, offshore wind is, is, I think, also challenged in the sense that some of the size and scale of these units now, you know, they're getting sort of close to 300 metres tall. Um, we certainly, from a distance, um, and distance will vary for us in terms of the location of units because it's important for us to find the right depth of water, which in some instances, depending upon a coastline, could be some distance off the actual coastline. Uh, so, yes, we... we it, it, it's something, as I say, um, that we take very seriously and acknowledge that in terms of all of the permitting requirements that we'll, we'll need to go through on a project by project, location by location basis, we've, we've got to ensure that our, our units do not offend um, the enjoyment of those locations. And to, to be honest with you, Belinda, I think that one of the realities for us is we, we look for locations that are typically uninhabited um, they're hard to find because, of course, people always love to find a way to get to those locations. Uh, especially our surfers. Yeah, like of course. Seek out the most secluded locations. That's right. <laughs> That's exactly right. So, so we absolutely have to to take that into account. But you know, Australia has an extensive coastline. 
Um, we we certainly uh, can produce extraordinary amounts of electricity without offending vast amounts of that coastline. Um, you know, uh, we we could talk about some of those numbers, but it's it's a small percentage. But again, it, it's we we do not in any way take for granted the importance of of us focusing on ensuring that local communities and those that enjoy those locations are not offended by, by what it is we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would like to say that I'm definitely less offended by a small concrete and metal structure than heightening climate impacts that are destroying our beaches anyway. So I think, you know, as an offset, I'd much rather be looking at the structure than I would be watching the coastline continually be yeah. eroded away or burnt down by fires or... No, I'm very pleased know, to the hear opposite, that. ...the opposite end of the impact. Very so, pleased to yeah. hear that. Um, so I'm intrigued to know, you did briefly mention it, but how is the energy connected back to the, the grid more specifically? It goes through like undersea cables you mentioned, and then I'm just new to this whole process of renewable energy. And so I'd love for you to be able to sort of just run us through the basics of how it gets, you know, from, from the wave, from the structure to the house when yeah. we're using it to boil our cattle. Yeah, no, that's, it's a great question. Uh, look, so, so yes, essentially the, the electric, I will make one important point about the, the electricity coming off the unit because I've, I've personally found this um, fascinating and, and also incredibly important. Your audience and, and your members will certainly uh, know that waves are inconsistent in that there's a time between waves yep. and we, we measure that very closely. Um, if it's a 15 to 20 second break between waves, one of the challenges we have faced is how do we then take that if you like, intermittent nature of the wave coming in in those different time frames, where a wave will come in, we'll get the effect of the, the air dispersion, we spin the turbine, and then the energy's gone until we get the next wave next into the unit. Now, of course, the turbine continues to spin, but it can spin up as there's more power that's being generated as a result of the, the air dispersion and the downstroke of the air back into the chamber. So it was very important for us on board our unit, we have what we call a supercapacitor, which is not particularly technical, it's like a small battery, but essentially as the energy is created off our turbine, it then goes through this box, I'll call it the black box, yep. the supercapacitor. <laughs> and the effect of that is that if you can imagine on one side of that black box, you've got this kind of looping roller coaster of energy coming in, in the, in the way that the waves right. are, are dispersed 15 to 20 seconds apart. But on the other side of that black box is a nice, suitable consistent flat line of electricity okay so it's kind of like taking that roller coaster and turning it into a straight line correct yeah. which was incredibly important to the operator of the grid on king island which happens to be hydro tasmania they, they were very concerned that we were able to ensure what they would consider a suitable quality of electricity which meant that it was that consistent stream of electricity, not something going up and down yeah. causing so you're not surges. So your house, seeing your lights. That's exactly right. <laughs> that's that's the best way to think about it. That it, you don't have your lights flickering because the power's there. Then it's gone. Then it's there. Then it, so that was incredibly important. So imagine that that nice consistent stream of electricity coming off the unit. Yes, it goes through an undersea cable that is attached to our um, power station equipment on the on the unit. It then hits a what effectively is best thought of as a transformer where uh, on one side of the transformer is, is our undersea cable connecting with Hydro Tasmania's network. On the other side of that transformer is Hydro Tasmania. So at that point of interconnect, they effectively take the electricity and from that point, 
uh, it's essentially on the network and it's available for businesses, households, they, they'll consume that um, as, as and when they require electricity. Yep, amazing. Just started thinking about wave periods when you were talking about intermission and for us surfers we tend to like a big wave period, it makes right. for stronger, better, um, usually cleaner waves. Right. Um, but wind swells, on the other hand, which have a shorter period, yeah. it could be a way we could get excited about wind swells. Right. There we go. <laughs> so you yeah. were like, no. Yeah. No, I understand. Crappy wind swell, but perfect for wave swell energy. Yeah. So, absolutely. Yeah. There is a silver lining. Um, so theoretically, talking about you know all the power going back into to grid, this this tech could work to start pairing small coastal communities like, for example, Port Campbell that has about, you know, population, I think of about 500 people at the last census or Scott's Head, which has a population of 900 people. And I've sort of selected these towns because they are quite cut off from, you know, they're secluded, they're surrounded by mountains and hills, they're not kind of, you know, connected to a larger city. and. There's obviously like power lines that run along the highway that are feeding these towns electricity at the moment. But when we see things like, I don't know, the Black Summer Fires, for example, you know, a lot of these smaller coastal communities were cut off from power. And so could this be something that could be effectively, effectively used in those smaller secluded communities? Yes, ab ab absolutely, Belinda. The the example of King Island is a good one in the sense that you know King Island doesn't sit on the national electricity market. It's not on that grid. There's no electricity cable from King Island to mainland Australia. There's no electricity connection back to mainland Tasmania from King Island. So it's very much they must fend for themselves on, on the island. Uh, and of course there are many locations like that in Australia where uh, not only might remote communities that are connected to the grid be cut off in those emergency situations as you describe, but there, there are many remote cities and towns, perhaps more so towns than, than cities, that are remote and aren't on the grid at all. So they effectively are running their own micro grid and dependent upon their own local sources of power. Now the problem for many communities in Australia that are in that situation is that unless they have an ability for hydro or, or otherwise, they're typically importing diesel or gas fuels, fossil fuels that are then burnt to create their electricity. That was certainly the situation on King Island up until 25 or so years ago where they were burning diesel to provide 100% of the energy on the island, but then they introduced wave, uh, sorry, uh, they introduced wind turbines, they introduced solar, they have a storage capability, and of course they now have a wave energy converter that's harvesting electricity from the ocean. So they've been diminishing their dependence on diesel and fossil fuels for electricity. So that for us presents as a, an incredible opportunity because uh, we can assist those communities uh, diminish their dependence on diesel. We are confident that that can be done in a way that uh, is not high cost to them, in fact possibly lower cost than the act, because you can imagine with diesel you're importing it, there's all sorts of costs Absolutely. associated with those fuels, we get rid of the carbon emission from those fuels then at lower cost. And what we're also finding with our units, if I could come back to the size issue that mm -hmm. we talked about earlier, uh, because of their size, well-designed 
uh, and well thought out, our units can actually form part of, a, if you like, an artificial breakwater or be incorporated in a breakwater. Or a surf break, maybe. Yeah, we'd have to, that's right, well, let, let's, let's explore that. But, but certainly the... They can uh, be utilised by the community in they, other ways. Co correct. Yeah. And, and, you know, what, one of the, the great implications of climate change and rising sea level and storm surges as a result of climate change is that many remote coastal communities are suffering the effects of coastal erosion and rising sea level. There are many islands globally, small island developing states, that are facing the existential threat of climate change in that they may no longer be able to, to live in their homelands and on their islands. And we're very conscious of this additional application for our technology, which is not only about producing clean, renewable, low-cost electricity for those communities, but also being a source of adaptation or, if you like, more resilient infrastructure that can actually allow those communities to adapt to the effects of rising sea level and, and through the sheer size and structure of these breakwaters, actually prevent any further coastal erosion. Yeah, and, so instead and of putting of, in like a, um, a seawall that goes out to try and collect sand, we could be implementing wastewell energy. That's it, Belinda. And you can imagine building breakwaters and seawalls for the purposes of protecting coastlines is a very expensive business. Yeah, and a lot of the time, well, this is a, a soft, seawalls are a tough topic with surfers because right. they tend to continually erode the beach and destroy, you know, the usable area. So, you know, yeah. it's not helping with us surfers in creating sandbanks, but it's also washing away a lot of the, 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 the area, the natural flow yeah, no, of sand. And, com yeah. Completely understand. And I think that, as I say, this has to be carefully thought out in terms yep. of design and how you do this. But, um, you know, we've had a look at uh, particular islands such as the Maldives where and I know that the Maldives presents as a, as a wonderful surfing location in many, many parts, the Maldives are sinking. You know, the, the, the truth of it is that I think the highest point of altitude is just over two metres and the average altitude is, is less than a metre. Yeah. Uh, they are facing the, the real threat um, of not being able to continue to, to live in some of those island locations. And uh, we, we need to think very carefully about the, the proposal for breakwater or seawall is an incredibly expensive and demanding Very cost. Yeah. If, if at the same time we can incorporate our technology uh, and as a result of that bring an energy source which displaces their burning of diesel or gas, presents this clean renewable electricity at lower cost but also then serves as part of the infrastructure to defend those islands against rising sea level and coastal erosion, then you've actually bought a financial revenue stream to what would otherwise be, I call it hard infrastructure because I don't like saying sunk infrastructure because that just doesn't sound right, but in the, yeah. in the terms of what we're doing, but the that that's becoming a, a, a reality. And uh, I think the issue of adaptation with respect to climate change is, is now equal to, if not more important in many respects than just mitigation and certainly getting a great deal of focus from the UN and from other uh, globally established bodies now looking to corral a level of support and investment in the type of resilient infrastructure that's required. And you know our technology presents as this dual application, as I say, low cost, clean, renewable energy and part of the infrastructure to defend against the effects of climate change. So amazing, I'm blown away, it's great. <laughs> so fantastic. Um, and so I'm intrigued, 
I kept thinking when you were talking earlier about the Kayama blowhole, like standing by that as a kid and having all yeah, the, yeah. you know, the waves wash up and they're like hitting you, like all the air going through. Is like, how did you come up with the development of this idea? Yeah, look, it's a, a great question. So look, our, um, the inventor of our technology, um, Dr. Tom Dennis, uh, is an oceanographer and a mathematician. Uh, so perfectly qualified to um, think through these types of opportunities and invention. Tom, Tom's been involved in the development of oscillating water columns um, for you know, over 20 years. So the, the concept itself of creating the artificial blowhole um, is, is not a new one. Um, it, it has been in play for some time. What was really is unique about our technology is that most oscillating water column energy converters have been what I would call bi-directional in their focus, meaning that they actually spin their turbine both on the upstroke of air, as you feel it when you're standing above the, the blowhole, mm -hmm. uh, but also on the downstroke of air. The light bulb moment that Tom had was very much about a unidirectional approach. So we only spin our turbine on the downstroke of the air as the wave is receding from the chamber. Now the reason uh, this is so important for us is that the way, the way Tom had thought this through was that if you consider air leaving the, uh, our chamber and pushing against a turbine, the science behind that, and I'm, I'm not particularly technical, Belinda, so I do apologise, but I'll try and describe it as best I can. The, because the wave coming up in the chamber is pushing against, and, and the air that's dispersing is pushing against the turbine, the wave doesn't rise as high in the chamber. So it's, it's limited um, in that sense. And so for us, what we've established is we, we want the wave to come as high in the chamber as we possibly can. And by allowing the air to disperse through vents, rather than being pushed against a turbine and spinning a turbine and, and the inertia of that, we've been able to get the wave higher in the unit and we, we know that we are now producing more energy on one downstroke as opposed to producing energy on both the upstroke and downstroke. So this is, this is very disruptive. Um, I can't tell you how many people have advised me, what are you doing just on a unidirectional basis? Why don't you pick up the air yeah, on both the in and the out? And one of the really key features of what we're doing that is an enormous advantage to us is that if you actually spin the turbine unidirectionally, the turbine itself is much simpler to construct. If you can imagine a turbine that's got to spin both oh, ways nice. with air coming at it from different directions is a fairly complex piece of machinery. Mm -hmm. So for us it's a much simpler piece of machinery. What does that mean? Very importantly it means that it's, it's more reliable um, and if it's more reliable, then it's lower cost to maintain. So we've kind of got this real trifecta going here where, uh, you know, we are more reliable, it is lower cost, and we are in fact producing more energy than the traditional bi-directional OWC approach. Um, so yes, look, I think that was um, Tom, Tom our, uh, our inventor, is um, very well renowned for uh, holding the world record for circumna circumnavigating the planet on foot. Oh, wow. Um, so this was something that he did some, some time ago, uh, which was an extraordinary accomplishment. He, I think, ran something like six, 60 kilometres a day for 622 days. Um, he held the record for a little while, and I suspect it was probably while he might have been traversing the Andes or 
in some exotic part of the world that he thought, you know what, there's a better way to do this. And I think that's where probably devised wow. this concept yeah. of the, <laughs> the of unidirectional, that that, that, that's it. Lots to think about, probably lots of time on his hands, but uh, yeah, look, that, that, that's the history. Yeah. Oh, amazing, so exciting. Um, all right, a lot of coastal communities, you know, sometimes suffer unemployment issues. Um, and so how many jobs does this project sort of employ in terms of, you know, from creation all the way through to maintaining and making sure that it's functioning? Yeah, look, I, I think that's a really important question, Belinda. We, if we think about what uh, had to be done to build the unit or design, build, deploy, operate the unit on King Island, um, through that process, I, I think probably in, in the original engineering and design aspects of the, the unit, we think um, we, we relied heavily on contracting and outsourcing to do that. The Waveswell team and our, our group of employees is very small, but we, we, we think there was pro probably 30 to 40 people in that engineering design desktop work that mm -hmm. was done on the unit. Um, in terms of the actual construction, uh, if you like, and, and the deployment of the unit. I mean, we're talking about over 150 people involved. And that, that ranged from um, contractors, tradesfolk that were concreting for us. Um, it involved, we towed the unit from uh, mainland Tasmania to King Island. Uh, there, there, there was extensive marine works that included, um, you know, diving operations and so on. So it, the, the skills uh, and, and the competencies required were extensive. So. Uh, Certainly, a number of people engaged in the, the as I say, the the engineering and the the design, the construction, the deployment of the unit. Uh, we have three people on King Island who are contracted to us. Um, they support us whenever we require things to be done on the island. But if you look at that broader ecosystem of support for the unit, it's quite extensive. And so, when we think about the next stages for our business and and the possibilities it brings. Uh, for towns, other communities where we will seek to do extensive manufacturing and, and, and work on uh, developing the units and deploying the units, the opportunity for employment, the opportunity for new skills um, is, is significant. And when you think about that in the context of remote communities um, and also remote islands, the opportunity to not only provide a boost to their local economies, sustaining their growth with renewable energy, but also you know, bringing that opportunity for new jobs and new skills into communities so desperately in need of, of those opportunities. Yeah, amazing. I'm sold. Gonna go learn to Good. Be, gonna wanna go learn to be a uh, tradesperson so I can come work on Yeah, there you go, there you go. <laughs> um, and so how does this scale up? What are the challenges you face as an energy business in the current situation? Yeah, well, look, I, I think it's, you know, as, as a, a new and emerging technology, Belinda, we're, we're competing with some pretty established technologies and ways in which energy is produced. So you can look traditionally to the very low cost, but uh, no longer acceptable um, fossil fuel generation sources, uh, but also sectors like solar and wind are also well ahead of us in terms of the scale of deployment of their technology. So the challenge for us is to really accelerate the deployment of our units and the installation of our units because every time we install a new unit and run a new project, we're learning. And we're learning how to reduce the costs to deploy those units, how to reduce the costs of operating those units, 
and also improving the efficiency and output of the units, all of which goes to ensuring that we can compete in the electricity market in Australia with the energy we produce alongside solar sources and wind sources and fossil fuel sources that have had a much longer history uh, in developing their technology. So that's really important. So being competitive in terms of our price point is absolutely key to the survivability of this technology. A couple of other things that are important to us, as we've talked uh, quite a bit about, the size and scale of the units is really important to us. So. Um, we, we work very closely on um, how do we, the, the, the unit for example on King Island is a 200 kilowatt unit. We think our next units will be 500 kilowatts, 750 kilowatts, up to a megawatt. Um, it's not always the case that getting bigger in this sector is always better. Um, we're certainly seeing other technologies do that. Um, if you look at wind technologies, you, you, you're, you know, you're talking about getting an individual wind turbine out to 10, up to 15 megawatts. Those will be massive installations. Um, for us, it's, it's more about what is the right size for our units in terms of achieving the greatest efficiency and cost competitiveness, and then how might we think about multiple units in arrays? Mm -hmm. So if you like a, a wave energy farm where you know, there could be 10 to 15 to 20 units deployed in a location, getting all the benefits of having more units in one location. But also, as I mentioned earlier, in a breakwater, if, if there was an opportunity with port infrastructure in a suitable wave climate, um, you can imagine our units being lined up um, one beside the other or, or spaced within a breakwater that can also, as a, as a combined source, be quite a significant amount of energy. Um, without the units necessarily growing to a, a size and scale that, that um, you know, isn't warranted. Yeah, that's great. Um, does, does politics affect your business much? Meaning, well, I guess it might be obvious, but does the stronger climate policy make a difference with your ability to scale this up? Belinda, it has a, a phenomenal impact. Uh, certainly what we have seen in Europe and I consider Europe to be the most advanced ocean technology sector in the world, what, what you see uh, as being incredibly important in that environment is European Union policy settings and public support for embracing ocean technologies. Um, you see targets being set for the adoption of wave energy conversion and very significant targets. Uh, you know, that they've already set a, a, a 2030 target of wanting 100 gigawatts of um, energy capacity um, in, the, in the ocean. They want 1,000 gigawatts by, um, by 2050, which could account for nearly 10% of Europe's energy consumed at that time. So the importance of that government support means that when industry sees government focused with a vision for the embracing of these new te renewable technologies, industry responds. Um, and for us, uh, right now, um, here in Australia, we're, we're working very hard with the new federal government to explore how there could be more support for a new emerging renewable technology like ours. Um, just as wind and solar 20 and 30 years ago also received that level of support, those industries now, of course, they, they can stand on their own two feet, um, albeit the, the offshore wind industry now, as it's very emerging in Australia, is also gaining a level of support from federal and state governments. 
uh, it's, it will be essential to us uh, in these early stages of the development of the technology. And it's, it's not that we want a free kick or otherwise, but we know, and it is proven globally, that if Australia uh, at this stage wants to lead as an innovator uh, and as a developer of ocean energy technologies, then now is the time to act. And the best way to do that is to create the right policy settings, set targets, uh, and the investment will come in terms of uh, if, if there is that confidence that, that a government does support the development of these technologies. So, yes, it, it is incredibly important to us. Yeah, well, there's a lot of fossil fuel subsidies going on out there, so it would be great to just dry those up and put them into Wavesweller. Hey, I, I like the way you're talking, and, you know, there's some simple things that can be done. I, I, I'm a very big one on targets. You know, if you set targets and you get focused around targets, people know where the goalposts are and, and what's required. And, you know, we're, we're very ambitious. That The targets in Australia... Um, are important at a, at a high level for the uh, establishment of renewable energies. And, you know, we would just love to see a, a focus that says, well, perhaps that's not just all about solar and wind and established renewable technologies. Is there a space within that target to say, well, does 5% of that target become new and innovative technologies? And if it did, again, that would be an extraordinary boost for us in terms of the way we can present our technology to private investment. Uh, and again, build that confidence that we're here to stay. It's not a fledgling technology. It's, it's going to become part of the core infrastructure that delivers electricity and uh, meets demand you know, over a, a, a very long period of time. Absolutely. And us surfers know, know more than anyone, like, you know, the waves never stop. Yeah. They could be really small one day, they could be really big the next, but they're consistent, so that energy is always there and our country's surrounded by it. <laughs> yeah, so Belinda, I, I can't tell you how important that statement is that you've just made because when you think about the uh, intermittent renewable resources that are available to us, solar, wind and wave are essentially those, those resources. Solar is heavily exploited today in Australia, wind increasingly so, both onshore and now the proposal for offshore. But it is scientifically proven that waves are more consistent, more reliable and less intermittent than those other sources, solar and wind. And I'm not, I'm not an advocate to say that wave should substitute solar and wind, but I am a huge advocate for wave complementing solar and wind. And the reason that that's incredibly important from a, a, an overall network perspective is that as we retire more and more of our coal-fired power stations and gas-fired power stations, which essentially present a baseload source of energy, as long as you keep chugging that coal into the, into the burner, you can turn it, and they're pretty slow in response, but you can turn them up and down and you can meet demand. If you take that baseload fossil fuel energy out of the system and you're left with 100% renewable generation from intermittent sources, mm -hmm. then the more diversity you bring to that mix of resources, which today is fundamentally solar and wind, if you bring wave into that mix, then it potentially has a profound impact in terms of the stability of the network, but also the cost of that new network. Because the reality of our current projections in this country and globally 
for how you guarantee electricity to meet demand when you're using intermittent resources is to firm it or support it with batteries, uh, storage solutions, expensive storage expensive. solutions. And so our, our proposition is that with the incorporation of wave energy into that mix with solar and with wind, you not only get a, a more stable network with a higher volume of electricity available to meet demand, but you don't require the same extent of investment in battery and storage solutions, which are expensive. And we've just completed some work with the, the CSIRO, um, some independent uh, research that we wanted them to do to actually um, calculate the net economic advantage of incorporating wave into our renewables mix. And what it shows is that in order to achieve a acceptable level of guaranteed electricity to meet demand, if you incorporate wave in the ratio of effectively a third each between solar and wind and wave, then you can get up to a 50% and more reduction in the total cost of that network. Wow. And fundamentally huge. that reduction in cost is because you don't require the same volume of storage that you would require if you were just firming solar and wind. So th these are very profound and important findings in terms of the potential contribution of Australia's oceans and the harvesting of the electricity in those oceans uh, as, a, as a core component of what will be a reliable and affordable and clean electricity network in a net zero ambition for 2050. Amazing. Totally blown away. Again, it's like multiple solutions all wrapped up into one. Yeah. Even thinking about the environmental factors when you're talking about batteries and storage as well, like decreasing that is huge, like the footprint of the, the there's, there's a limited amount of lithium on yeah. the planet, Belinda, and I think right now uh, electric vehicle car manufacturers have got their heart set on most of that, that lithium and maybe that's the right place for that lithium to go. Maybe it is. Um, because there is another source of energy yet to be harvested that can actually substitute and replace that necessity in terms of its contribution to electricity supply. Yeah, amazing. So um, we're super excited about this tech progress. What are the next steps for you guys? Yeah, look, ne next steps, uh, having proven the technology now on uh, in our demonstration and, and pilot of the technology on King Island, the, the next step really is commercialization of the technology. What does commercialization mean for us? That essentially means more projects. Uh, so as I said earlier, the way that our technology will become mainstream is to see more and more deployments of the technology. Every time we deploy, we learn. We learn how to reduce the cost to construct. We learn how to reduce the cost to operate. And our technology is really just getting started in terms of the efficiency and the improvements in, that we think we can achieve with the efficiency of the units. So uh, that's next step is, is to identify those project opportunities. Um, they exist globally. Uh, right now, as I've said, the European market is the most advanced market, the most supportive market for our technology. So we are engaged very closely in opportunities in Europe. Uh, but of course, we, we don't want our technology to be lost to, uh, to Europe or to the United States. The United States is also 
um, engaging increasingly in the opportunity with their oceans. And they have some terrific wave climates, as you know, along mm -hmm. the West Coast. Um, and really, I mean, goodness me, South America up into North America, Canada, um, Alaska, my goodness, some extraordinary, extraordinary wave climate. So they're, they're also engaging. And I think with the Biden administration now allocating over 350 US billion dollars to renewable generation, we expect to see more and more opportunity for our technology there. Um, but look, we, we're a homegrown Aussie innovation. And uh, unlike what has happened with uh, wind uh, and solar, where perhaps other parts of the world have been able to embrace innovation and commercialise and scale um, to, to a point where they lead in those markets, Australia has an opportunity here to, to lead. Uh, this is an emerging sector globally. Uh, Australia does have an abundance of wave energy um, that is equivalent to, if not better than many other countries around the world. And, and of course, we would love to, to see the opportunity to deploy more of our technology in Australia um, for, for the benefit of Australians. So. Um, we have to be responsible, we have to go to where the opportunities are um, and as I say we're working very hard to ensure the policy settings and the programs are right here in Australia um, but, but for us in essence it will be about finding those projects, deploying more of our technology, becoming a commercially and compelling source of electricity and becoming part of the fabric and core of that net zero electricity network.